Welcome to Life of the School, episode 110. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Massachusetts. Uh, and on this podcast, uh, myself and a group of fellow life science teachers get together and we talk about the issues that are facing us and our students in our classroom. For this episode, we are going to be launching launching our first episode of 2021. And so we're going to have our resolutions episode. Uh, joining us for, for this episode, starting with Ryan. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. Good to be here. So, uh, so Ryan, um, we're going to do something a little bit different because we're definitely going to be talking about our, our focus this year as being focusing on 2020, having equity be a focus for us. And so I, I thought it would be an appropriate thing to honor and acknowledge the native lands uh, where we're recording from. So I'm broadcasting from the land of Nipmuc Nation um, here in what is now known as Massachusetts. Uh, how about you? Uh, what native lands can we honor where you're recording from? Um, I am in Southwest Missouri, so we kind of overlap with the Kickapoo and the Osage tribes. All right. Now, is this something I, I will tell you for myself um, and around in here? Like, we have a lot of things that are named based off of the the, the tribes in the area. So, like, there's a uh, a regional uh, high school or regional school district called Nipmuc, which is a little south of where I live. Um, are there vestiges of of land things named after natives, the natives people um, around you? Uh, absolutely. Just like you, we have a local high school called Kickapoo High School. Cool. All right. Uh, and joining us uh, as well is Tanea. Welcome, Tanea. Hi. And so uh, you're you're in an interesting place because you're out west. And, you know, we were talking a little before we started recording, like where I am is <laughs> the, the, the native people were the first people to be displaced. Um, but you live in a land where uh, there were waves of people who were displaced out west from eastern areas so uh what were the what are considered the native lands where you are i i, I live in um i work in in phoenix but i live in um the city of maricopa which is just outside of maricopa county mm-hmm. i um and so when i look this up it says the uh, and i hope i don't pronounce this horribly it says the ho mm-hmm. the ho kam and the akimil od odham tribes mm-hmm. And there is a middle school that is called um, Akimel Middle School that's in like the south part of uh, Phoenix, Awatuki area. But I, I honestly, um, I have to do a lot more research. I know that the Indian school is a really famous um, road in Phoenix. It's just south mm-hmm. of my school that I work at. And I did go, um, my school, all of us went to the to the museum and we found out about the Indian school's um that used to be there on the corner where all the um, Indian people were sending their kids and they kind of were ripped of stripped of their, you know, their native um, ways and things like that. So um, I have a lot more that I have to learn. Yeah. So this is like the idea of the, the, and I hate using this word, but the idea of sort of the civilizing schools that were, as you said, like trying to, um, you know, westernize um, the kids of the native people of that land. Is that is that a fair description? Yeah, they said it was cheaper to do to educate them in the way they wanted mm-hmm. to than to than to go to war with them. That's a quote. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, and it's it's interesting to hear this because it's again where I live in the Northeast. It, there's a very, you know. The, there's been there have been Europeans living in the area where I've lived where I currently live for like legitimately 400 years like it's not you know that Massachusetts has been there um and so as awful and complicated as you know European settlers have with all native people it it's interesting to think of how different it is in the different parts of the country um and being in the southwest it's again very very different um wow all right well Joining us as well is is Lee Ferguson. Uh, Lee, where are you joining us from? So I'm in north. I'm in, I'm in north central Texas, which oddly um, doesn't have any native tribes that have occupied this land because the the history that Texas has with Native Americans is 
a pretty horrible one, honestly. Um, and first, in fact, the first governor, I, I want to say he was the first governor of Texas, a uh, guy named Mirabeau Lamar, um, his mission while he was in office was to essentially eradicate all the Native Americans that lived here. And he was successful in that. And so, you know, um, there weren't any tribes that inhabited at least this part of Texas, but there later were tribes that inhabited, I want to say it's the South, the Far West, and like the Far North, like Amarillo, the Panhandle. Hmm. So my part of Texas didn't have anybody who settled here, but there were lots of tribes that came through here and kind of passed through here on their way to other places. And so, you know, we had, uh, they, they recorded that the Caddo, Comanche, Wichita, and Kiowa tribes were the ones that came through here. And there are some vestiges of them having been here. You know, a couple of the lakes are named after these tribes. Um, there's, I know, Caddo Lake, Coman you know, Comanche Peak, which is out west of here near Fort Worth, Wichita Falls, um, Lake Kiowa. And so there's a lot of things named after the tribes, um, but then a lot of people were resettled here in the 1950s through the 1970s. And, you know, I was reading, there was actually a, an article in the Dallas Morning News not long ago about all of this. And they, you know, specifically talked about some of the folks from just all over the country that had been resettled here, you know, as a result of some federal policies that were enacted in the 1950s. So. There you go. Like I said, our, our history is super complicated. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it sounds like there, there likely were Native peoples in that area, but because of mm -hmm. um, very successful genocide, the, the yeah. documentation, mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, is that Lamar, the guy who, you know, did all of this, has a county named after him. He's got a university named after him. There's lots of high schools named after him. Um and I don't know that there are any schools or other public, you know, works named after any of these tribes that were here. So very interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, and I grew up in I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, and and uh, you know, uh, Lord Jeffrey Amherst has again a town named after him, a college named after him, and is most notably in history, you know, as we learned, uh, was the per was one of the people who uh, intentionally. Uh, gave smallpox ridden blankets to the native peoples um, to eradicate them. So, um, and for those people who know Amherst, Massachusetts, it is a super liberal, uh, very, <laughs> very left leaning. And it's, there's, there's always been this disconnect that I've had between that town and the history of the person that that, that town's named for um, mm -hmm. is is very complicated. Yeah, I was going to say, I imagine there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there too, just, you know, in thinking yeah. about like the history of the place and, and, or the history of the person and then trying to reconcile that with the, the way that the place is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and just uh, for reference in there, and I'll put it into the show notes. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, walk around knowing the history of the lands around me. And in fact, I have to look these things up. And so um, I, I shared a link uh, with everybody uh, called native-land.ca, uh, which is a map that doesn't represent or intend to represent any official or legal boundaries, but it's basically been pulled together to document um, some of the information that has been gathered from historical documentation about who could have lived on those lands. And so I think, you know, Lee highlighted a lot of the sort of the, the deficits, you know, like we can only know the history that we have recorded. Um, and so this is by no means perfect. And I'm sure there were other native peoples that lived on these lands in the past, but um, I felt, I felt like it, 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 I've been in meetings over the last particular year where we've talked a lot about, you know, indigenous people and how to honor, um, you know, the, the genocide that occurred to the, those people. And I will say that this Thanksgiving, I had very complicated feelings about uh, Thanksgiving, uh, <laughs> thinking about some of the representations that I know that my family had used historically. Uh, but I thought that it would be worth at least, you know, making a small tribute um, as we, as we launch this, if equity is going to be our focus. So. Definitely. Definitely. Cause I don't think that there's enough attention paid to, you know, the indigenous peoples of this country. Honestly, I mean, especially with, with regard to schools. I mean, we know that, you know, schools on native lands are not as well funded. They're not, you know, those, those students don't make up a large percentage of our student populations, at least not in public schools. I know that, I mean, we have just a very few, like in, in, in my, you know, years at my campus, I've only had maybe a handful of students who've identified as native, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and so we just don't see that many, you know, we just don't see that many. Yeah. And, and in this part of, you know, of the United States, again, very low representation as well. I would, I would agree with that, but I think that's probably true of all, of all schools. Um, you know, uh, unless you are in a, at a tribe, a tribal school, or if you're at a, a school that's on a, a reservation, um, yeah, and I've met people who teach at reservation schools at conferences and stuff like that, and I always feel like there's a there's a gap between my knowledge, of, like what I know and what they do, that is different than in any other type of school. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a real hole in my knowledge. So uh, I think that what we want to do here, and you know, we had talked about this, and I think we're going to spend uh, many more days discussing equity um, as we move forward. But uh, when we started talking about the concept of you know, what would be like the podcast's <laughs> New Year's resolutions, um, you know, I think equity was something that really resonated with us as a group. I think that, is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we decided that, that we'd want to kick off the year, kick off 2021 by talking about like this as a resolution. And so let's start by talking about, um, I think, you know, if we want to be positive and, you know, I'm always sunshines and rainbows all the time. So um, I always think of the positive. And I think 2020, for as awful a year as it was, did shine a light on the 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 inequities that exist in our world in a way that was more powerful than the way inequities have been shown previously. Um, and obviously it was because of how terrible the year was. Uh, but I felt like... People who never really talked about inequity suddenly were acknowledging it. Um, so I, I want to know, how do you feel about the 2020 work that was done on equity sort of in your community? What, what, what did you see? What kind of things came forward? So, Lee, how about you? What, how, what, what is your takeaway from 2020 in terms of equity? So if I'm focusing specifically on my school community, mm-hmm. um, then I'm going to I'm going to stick my neck out and say that there wasn't enough done. Um, And I think that, you know, I think a large part of that stemmed from, um, you know, the, the uncertainty that was, that was thrust upon us in the spring with pandemic, you know, teaching and all of this. But then I also think that that continued into the semester because now, you know, admin is preoccupied with, oh my gosh, how are we going to get these kids to, to be successful, you know, because they're, you know, they're not at school and, and this and that. And so I think that, you know, right now our preoccupation with those things is what's keeping us from doing the work. And, you know, I, it, it makes me a little sad and it makes me kind of angry, honestly, um, that we're not, you know, that that isn't in the forefront, you know, because this past year has shown us as a, not just as a country, but, you know, as our local communities that, you know, systemic racism is alive and well, you know, that, that we, we have so far to go in terms of providing equal opportunities for everyone. And, and, and not just, you know, our black students, our brown students, but, you know, our students who identify as trans or who identify as non-binary or, or who identify as gay, um, you know, we, we're not doing enough, I don't think, to, to really and truly provide, you know, what, what, what I would consider to be an environment where equity can thrive, you know, because, yeah, it's great that we provided everybody access to technology, but let's face it, technology access is not enough. You know, that's, you know, you can't, you can't put a computer in a kid's hands and say, okay, everything's equitable. (laughs) You know, that's, that's not the, that's not the quick fix. I mean, you've got to have, first of all, I think you've got to have some professional development to help people identify the intrinsic bias that they have, you know, because it's that internal bias that we all have, you know, that I think is at the heart of all inequity, right? Because we all have some kind of bias you know, about some, you know, and these stereotypes that we hold about certain groups of individuals or certain situations. And that's something that we have to first admit exists and then admit, okay, I have to fix this, you know, because if I keep carrying this bias, then it's going to cloud my judgment with regard to the things I need to do for students that is right, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, or that are right. And so, you know, we, we've got to have professional development about that. And, and that's not something I see happening, not in my district, not in other districts. Um, 
you know, and then we need to have PD about culturally responsive teaching and instructional design. Um, you know, what are the principles behind it? Why does it work? How does it benefit kids? And how does it benefit teachers? And how do we design the work that we want students to do, you know, around these principles? And, and so if, you, if your school and your, your school community is not going to invest the time and the resources needed to, to address those things, then you're never going to achieve equity in the classroom, I don't think. Um, you know, because you've got to have you've got to have those pieces in place in order for you to get to a place where you can say with conviction, yes, my school is, you know, devoted to or, or dedicated to providing equitable learning spaces, safe learning spaces. You know, you know, we are a community that is, you know, committed to social justice and making sure that everybody has what they need and that, you know, we're doing this in a way that honors everybody who steps foot in our school. And, you know, like I said, in, in the show notes, I say, oh, what I, my quote is the long moral arc hasn't bent quite towards justice, <laughs> you know, on my campus, as far as issues of equity. But, you know, I'm worried that because we're so preoccupied with COVID and all of the things that COVID is affecting us, uh, you know, how COVID is affecting us as a school community, that we're that's what's keeping us from flexing it in that direction. And so, you know, I hope that as this pandemic abates, you know, as it, you know, as vaccines are distributed and all of this, and that's a whole other ball of wax, but as people become, you know, as it becomes safe for us to gather together again and all of this, I hope that, you know, our administrators and our, you know, our district officials see, hey, we've missed this opportunity. And we need to really kind of focus on this and be committed to this as a district, you know, and, and that's, that's what I'm hoping happens, you know, because like I said, it just didn't happen that way. And if it did, and, and I missed it, how, <laughs> yeah. how, how did this happen? And I didn't know, you know, I mean, I like to think that I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty vocal person on my campus and I'm a pretty aware person on my campus. And, and if it happened and I didn't know it, then, you know, it wasn't because I wasn't paying attention. So. Yeah. All right. I have, I have lots of questions. I'm going to, I'm going to wait. I'm going to hear from everybody because you bowled up a bunch of questions there. So I'm, I'm going to come back to them, but I, I want to hear from, from everybody else. And I, I think that um, uh, we're going to see some themes <laughs> out of here. Yeah. Uh, so, so Ryan, uh, how about you? I mean, I think it, uh, we have learned that we, we, I think, teach on different planets, but um, how, <laughs> just based off of our descriptions of our schools. But um, uh, what, do, what do you feel about the 2020 work being done um, on equity in your local school or in your local community? Um, well, my school's demographics are 99.9% white, 99.9% cis. Um, I, I want to say that we have three black students I, I if i if i'm correct and they're from the same family i think we have one asian student and that's it in, in the entire high school wow. um so unfortunately from from our standpoint that there there isn't a problem they they too many people view this uh, view the issues that have come up during 2020 as kind of being an us versus them kind of thing. They, they're not using it as a opportunity to learn more about different cultures and learn more about um, just people in general, but it's become a, well, they're trying to infringe upon our rights as heterosexual Caucasians. And so it's, un it's unfortunate that it's that way. I mean, the, the best thing that could happen to our district would be immersion. Um, we've had two uh, foreign exchange students over the last year who have done wonders for opening up the eyes of my students, but it's, it's just not enough. Um, from, from our standpoint, our biggest area of inequity is socioeconomic inequity. So mm -hmm. to put into perspective, my... Um, my district went and got a grant and got us um, Chromebooks for all of our students, which for most school districts, 
It's, yeah, that's old news. But for our school district to do that, that is a hu- humongous, humongous deal. Um, especially because we do not have good internet access out where we are. Um, geographically, it is just tough to find um, internet access, even, even if they can afford it. Mm-hmm. And so um, there were a handful of students who um, it, it's time for them to do a lesson at school because we're face-to-face and they don't have their Chromebook. And when we ask, um, they've said that their parents sold their Chromebook so they, they could eat. Um, and That's they, heartbreaking. They not, right. And, and they are not apologetic at all. If I'm going to choose between feeding my kids and holding on to this Chromebook, there is no choice. You, right. you can... Um, you can bill us, but we're never going to be able to pay it. So what, I mean, what I'm, I'm going to feed my kids. And so we not, not just from the ruralism standpoint, you know, we rural schools are tend to be forgotten anyway, but from just a pure socioeconomic standpoint, we are, we are behind in terms of what, what um, benefits we receive from the government from 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 any place? We are ninety percent free and reduced lunch. The elementary school in our district is a hundred percent free and reduced lunch. Um, and so, us trying to get equity in terms of technology and in terms of um, just f- financial equity that 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 is our biggest area where we have tried to improve because that's what affects us the most. Um, we also have an abnormally high IEP rate. Our schools, I about 35% of my high school has an IEP. And so my uh, special services director has been working her butt off trying to ensure that our IEP students are continuing to receive their accommodations, even when we go virtual or even when, um, there is an assignment that has to be done on the computer. It, you know, it's, it's tough to ensure that equity is occurring in, in those situations, you know, and, and it's not to say that it's the, the fault of the teacher, you know, we're teaching asynchronously and synchronously and we're got, you know, we got cameras going while we got kids in front of us. We were, we're trying to disinfect while we go to the bathroom. It's, it, it, it is nuts. It's just the reality of it. Um, so, you know, my, my school district is trying, but we're, we're just behind the eight ball. We just do not have the same kind of resources as a suburban or an even a lower income urban school has. We, we can't go outside and access Google Fiber. We can't go to the McDonald's to get Wi-Fi because we don't have a McDonald's. We don't even, I think we have one restaurant in the entire town and it, it does not even accept credit cards. So we, we are, we are way behind um, where, where most schools are at. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's, it's, it sounds like this is just highlighting inequities that existed before. And they're just, they're just, you know, this is not news to you that there were these inequities, like oh, these existed. No. And now that we're in the middle of a pandemic where, you know, all of these other problems come about that it's just like layering additional problems and challenges onto an already uh, stressed uh, district that didn't have the resources that they should have had to begin with. Does that sound right? Absolutely. And when you look at like with us going virtual, all it's doing is widening the gap. Our, our kids that don't have access to internet, they can't, do their assignments at home, but we can't continue to just make everything optional. So they're getting left behind. I, I don't know what the solution is, but like, like you said, this, this pandemic has just magnified what we have already been seeing. Hmm. All right. Yeah. A million more questions, a million questions to keep asking, but um, <laughs> I will, uh, I would like to hear from Tanea. Uh, Tanea, how how do you feel about your local community? And I know we've talked about this quite a bit in the fall, uh, but what are your feelings about the the equity work that was done by your local community in twenty twenty? 
Um, so I have a lot of mixed feelings. Um, I feel I work at a predominantly white institution, historically um, all male, all white institution historically. So I feel that any any though predominantly white institution, um, even one like where Ryan works, I think it has a long way to go in terms of building an equitable community. Because I think we have to look at the history of our nation and we have to ask, how did these institutions end up being the way they are? How is it that certain groups of people did not become part of these communities? Um, and when you when you start like reading and delving into, I did, I've done a lot of reading this year and last year, and you start looking at the length that our government went and the, the lengths that institutions went, um, to create the institutions that we are now a part of today and to exclude certain groups, whether it's like with immigration laws or housing laws. I mean, even there, there were laws where like, if you tried to marry somebody, you, you could be put to death, you know? So we worked really, really hard to keep this country um, white and, and to exclude certain groups of people um, along the way. In, in terms of like even economic, um, in economic ways, educational, just in, on many, many different levels. And a lot of that stuff is still happening because of, um, because certain practices have become systemic. And it's not, not necessarily um, everything's based nowadays um, just because of people's personal biases. Those, those do play a, uh, a role, people's personal prejudices and stuff like that but also just the way the systems run, they keep running the way that they've run. So, uh, so I understand there's a lot of work that, that has to be done. My father, uh, he had to go to jail and he had to strike to be able to have black studies at San Francisco state back in the day. Um, and no, I haven't had to go to jail to be able to talk about some of the things that I want to talk about in my class but I haven't always even felt comfortable to even, even bring some things up. And so um, now that I'm in my 15th year of teaching, I'm, I'm doing things I haven't done before, but it's taken, you know, a little bit of encouragement from some other people and some courage on my part and just working past my fears to get to that point. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, um, but 2020, for my institution in particular, where I'm at now, it did put like us on a fast forward. So some things that maybe weren't on our list that were must do things, all of a sudden became like must do things. So we have a strategic plan um, that we've, in the initial steps of a strategic plan for you know becoming an anti-racist institution. And I'm really excited about that. I see progress. But as the the only black female faculty, well, I don't know. I don't even know if I can say that anymore because there is a there's a black counselor who works at the school now. But, you know, we're all off in our own rooms. <laughs> Not like I see anybody anymore. Um, but so um, the school has become more diverse and they're yeah. working on doing that. Um, but it's like I said, it's a long way to go. So I think that some of the institutional changes that I would like to see, uh, even though I'm seeing some changes now, those changes are not going to be deep enough necessarily to, to impact me directly, or maybe if my son was coming to, to the school, my sons were coming to the school to impact them um, directly or to impact directly the students who are currently on the campus. Like I want to see changes happen so that I know the kids that are sitting in my class now they're going to have a different experience than somebody um, that was there, you know, however many years ago. And sometimes I think uh, we, we talk about change, but we don't necessarily implement the change and we don't feel the change. Um, and so it's this like really, really slow process. that has been a little bit um, frustrating for me. So I'm thinking about biology and evolution and I want this, I know the pandemic is supposed to be like this horrible event that happened, but I, I need something more catastrophic to happen. Like, like, cause 
like black men have been getting killed. That's not anything new. Like, right. Um, I've, I've watched my mother be handcuffed in front of my, you know, in, in front of me and her, her, my sisters and be threatened by the cops. That's, I grew up like that. That's not new. And so, um, I, I feel like something more catastrophic has to happen, um, so that people feel like they, they have to change and they have to change deeply and then they have to do it, um, quickly. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen though. Cause you know, um, but so I, I would say that Brophy's going to be proud of the work that they're, they're definitely should be proud of the work that they've done so far and the work that they've committed to continuing to doing, but the road ahead is um, very, very long. If, mm. if we've established this country as a, we've established this country with racist ideas and practices and policies and laws, and it, it's been at least 400 years, we, maybe we can argue more, right? Then, um, and we have only, you know, people, black people, or slavery has only ended, what, like, over 100 years or whatever. Like, we still have... A, many hundreds of years to be to undo all the the stuff that's been done. So that's where I'm at. I, I'm trying to be positive. No, I mean, well, I mean, you dropped a, a bomb in the middle of that for me, where you mentioned the San Francisco State University. Uh, was was your father part of the the student uprising and the the '68 student uprising? Yeah, he was yeah. a um, he was a teacher there. He's a professor there, and. He, um, you know, I, he was like initially where he worked at the Black Panther, he volunteered at the Black Panther school and, um, but in, he was, par- I, he was part of the Black Panthers, but he was like, in terms of education, that's what he wanted. He wanted to go like into the, into like Oakland and San Francisco and he wanted to like feed the kids and like tutor the kids and like help the kids. He, and then when they wanted him to carry a gun, that's when he was like, oh yeah, no, that's not me. <laughs> so, um, he, he was very much into education. That's his perspective was always through education. Yeah. There was a fantastic um, NPR podcast that was all about the, it was third world liberation front and that strike and the sort of the tendrils and how the student uprising led to some changes at the school, some policy changes, but also a lot of, a lot of costs for the people, Mm -hmm. for the, the students and the professors who were involved with that, like from a PR standpoint, it looked like, Hey, look, all of these positive changes that happened, but the tendrils of the people who put their necks out that it wasn't all positive outcomes for them. Um, No, like my dad never, he got, I think before he died, he finally got tenure um, at the, um, at the community college he was working at, but like it took him his whole life to get to that point. And um, I, I, I could probably tell you story after story about all the, all the things my mother, my mother and my dad would tell me about when he was trying to get his PhD at UC Berkeley and the things that people said to him and, you know, the stuff was, that was stolen from him. So yeah, he had a really hard time. It wasn't easy. Uh, well, I, before I get into, I mean, we, I think we all could ask each other a ton of things. I, again, I think my, where I come from and I, I wonder about sort of the, I hate to sound like this is political, but like, it feels to me like, the 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 local politics where you teach has a huge impact on the the space for both student and faculty members to discuss inequities um and for i would me, agree with that <laughs> I mean, well i live in a very conservative area in fact we're one of the most conservative counties in the state and so and you're in texas I, yes <laughs> and i'm in texas and so and and we're near a we're near we're in a major metropolitan area you know so it that and that's the thing is it if you look at a map of texas and you look at how you know the, the county maps and you look at how the counties voted in this last election and every previous election you know you see the the larger metropolitan areas are predominantly blue, right? Where the blueberries and the tomato soup, but you know, the rest of the state is red, very red, you know, my County included, you know, we're turning a little bit more purple, but not enough to, to really see any drastic culture shifts in, you know, the way that people talk about inequity or do anything about it, you know, 
And I mean, and I will say this, there are some school districts in this area that are a little bit better about it than, than mine um, and, and better than others. But I'm going to say that my district is not progressive in that way. You know, I'm not afraid to say that because it's true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, and for me, the contrast is that, you know, my school is, and it's funny because as I mentioned before, I grew up in, <laughs> I grew up in arguably one of the most liberal towns, like in the country um, to the point where like, just, that's just the nature of, of Amherst, Massachusetts. It is, it's part of the happy Valley. It is, you know, college town. It is a, a ultra, ultra progressive town. Um, that is not to suggest that there aren't uh, inequities there and there are not many issues, but like from a political standpoint, the, the tone and tenor of the political discussions are, more progressive than most places in the world. So when I came and taught where I taught, where I currently teach uh, 20 years ago, I viewed this area as more conservative. Again, it's based off perspective. It's more conservative than the most liberal place on the planet, which is where I've gone. But it has gotten more progressive since I've taught there. Um, and and while I've been there, I've been very, I've always been very proud of, you know, we have in this, you know, as we the, we're recording this coming up, we have a Pride Week coming up. Um, where where the students and faculty are encouraged to wear erased hate t-shirts that are purple. Um, and we have a very um, active uh, LGBTQI uh, student uh, you know student organization. And it's always felt like that is a community where it's a very safe space for students who were not, uh, you know, cisgendered students. Like it, it has been, and they, I feel like they've been ahead of the conversation there. But I haven't felt like we've been having conversations about race. Um, it, it has, and it's in the last couple of years, it, it feels like we're finally starting to have the kind of conversation about race that we were having about gender like maybe 30 years ago. Like, you know, if that makes sense. Like, the concept of, and again, I just watched the West Wing um, <laughs> and they were talking about the late nineties and how gay marriage was super controversial, you know, which now gay marriage is, you know, where I am not controversial at all. Um, I'm sure there are parts of the country where it is controversial, but where I am, that's like a non-issue, but you know, 20, 25 years ago, that was considered an out there radical idea. And I feel like we're sort of in a similar space. And so uh, while I don't think it's fair, I think that if there's inequities and you could acknowledge them, you should just make them equal. And I uh, very much appreciate Tanea's frustration with the crawl that is infuriating. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, it just like, if you can see something's inequitable, just make it, make it right. But it doesn't feel like everybody's acknowledging the inequities. And well, yeah. So I think the problem is though, when you start to, when you start to dig into it mm -hmm. and you realize how deep those inequities go and how every system every decision that's been made has been made from an inequitable place. And it's really hard for people to kind of sit with that and say, how much are we willing to create like change to create an equitable school when the school wasn't really set up like that from the get go. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's some tough conversations you got to have people. And you, then you'll, you'll start getting these readings where you start reading about like the idea of perfectionism. Where does that come from? is like there's like a lot of ideas that are considered like um you know maybe western um european ways of doing things and who decided that that was the way like that that was what matters uh and you start digging into that stuff and, and people say hey you're going too far like that's too much you can't change this or can't change that and people start getting emotional and that's when it starts getting tough like really tough well, they're referred to sacred cows for a reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, you can't. There, there are things that you cannot. You know, that 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 everybody has these things that, that in their community that they they don't they they feel are like untouched that they can't cross that line. And um, wait a minute, we we were having this conversation. Why are you bringing up this other thing? This other thing, which yeah, sure, it's part of the structure that has created and built this entire system of inequity. But um, we don't want to change that too. Um, so, uh, uh, gosh, well, I, I think, 
we're going to have m- many more equitable conversations, many more conversations about equity um, because I, the four of us, while I think if we were put in charge of everything we have, I think uh, between the four of us, we have like 15 or 16 free minutes a week where we could solve the world's problems. Uh, um, and that might be, that might be generous. And that's, that doesn't include the the time we have to give to Tanea to help her get the things that she doesn't have time to finish. Right. But, but I think uh, part of making the changes that we have involves a little bit of vulnerability about sort of acknowledging what we all have to work on ourselves. So it's, again, it, for me, it's very easy to throw stones. I can tell other people how they, they're, uh, not good enough um, <laughs> all day long, but I don't think it's very constructive. So um, while I will acknowledge there's a lot of structural things in my world that need to get fixed, um, I also want to you know fix my own house first. What are the things that I need to do? And so I'm going to ask you guys to, to sort of share a little bit of moment of, moment of vulnerability. What what do we each need to work on in 2020? What are the things that if that will make us better? you know, people, teachers, everything. Like, what do we need to work on ourselves? And and today we're on already at a roll, so I'm going to keep with you. What, what do you feel like you need to work on in, in 2020? I, um, I definitely need to be more patient because um, I, I've done, I've, I've been really vulnerable and then I'll, I'll be impatient because other people aren't being vulnerable. <laughs> so like I've gone through these, um, cycles where I say like hey if nobody else is gonna like you know kind of put themselves out there I'm gonna stop putting myself out there Mm -hmm. so yeah I decided I had to be patient I I've been uh like I said I've been reading a lot of books and delving deep and then I grew up in berserkly berkeley california (laughs) so I'm already kind of way left already and um but I like recently and maybe maybe because like having kids um I was out of the country and then coming back to the United States and I was hearing about all these black men being killed. And I have two black boys and my, my younger son, my older son, excuse me, is um, already, he's 13 and he's like six feet one or something. So I'm, I worry uh, for him and what he's going to experience in this world. So I've been delving deep and trying to, trying to make sure that I'm knowledgeable about um, the world that I live in. Right. And I, um, I know that it's not, this work is not like for everybody. It's not like their priority. And I accept that. Um, but I, and in the same time, I have these experiences and I'm just, I'm trying to keep my sanity. So I work mm-hmm. on me. Right. And then I create spaces where other people who are at the point in their development, where they also want to have conversations I try to create those spaces, safe spaces for us to like kind of wrestle with different ideas together. Um, and then I have to figure out, I'm, I'm really working. I know you probably don't believe me, but I'm really trying to think about how can I carve out more time for my kids? Cause my son is going to in like three and a, four and a half years, he's going to go off and leave the house most probably. Um, and I know he's going to experience things that I've sheltered him from and I want him to be uh, well equipped to, to, to deal with whatever the world has in store for him. Um, and I, but I also want him to have a, a really good example of how do you go out and have a positive influence on the community that you're a part of. So I'm trying to do it all and that balance isn't there. Um, yeah. So patience, I need more patience. Well, I, I mean, I love the, the way you talk about like, creating spaces and even if it's you know i know that when i speak in those languages you know i use that kind of language i think i'm speaking more of a it's more aspirational um (laughs) you know that's i think that's how i behave that's how i want to always behave i want to create those spaces and i don't want to be there so i think it's you know it's laudable and you're right i think if you ever find yourself short on patience you cannot create those spaces um but as somebody, as somebody has two boys myself, one of whom we have been working on college applications this past uh, couple months. Um, yeah, he's theoretically leaving the house, and well, you know, who knows when anybody's leaving the house? But <laughs> theoretically, later this year, <laughs> later he's leaving this year, and 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 the question is, and you know, and sort of the unfairness, you know, um, the conversations I have to have with him are about his privilege, 
not about how to keep them safe. And that is, um, that's heartbreaking. Like you talking about that, knowing what I'm knowing the same, we have, we both have boys. We both are raising young men, but it's not right that we don't have the same conversations with them. That like the conversation you have with your boys and the conversation I have with my boys, um, are appropriate for them and raising them into the world, but is not right and is not fair. Um, and I, it, that, that makes me angry. It makes me less, feel less patient. Um, uh, but I, I'm a lot heartbroken. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, a, I, I don't, it's not my fault, but at the same point, it, it makes me feel, feel, makes me feel sorry that that has to still happen. Um, and want I want to fix it. <laughs> so, and we're and we're gonna bring all the other educators out there that are listening yeah. in to help us fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna try to do it. Um, I may have to start another podcast where I'm like, "Hey, white men, I gotta bring you over here, and we gotta all talk." Because <laughs> um, honestly, because right because I gotta tell you, white guys, we're the problem. <laughs> so uh, we gotta go fix that. So, um, yeah. White women too, though. White women. Yeah, too. white women too. But um, but I will say, you know, uh, for all of the people who aren't, I have read five or six articles for all of the people who aren't white men questioning why they voted for Trump. But I have not mm-hmm. read an article yet about why did white men vote for Trump, and the fact that white men are never questioned about why they vote the way they vote. They vote mm-hmm. for a system that perpetuates inequities. White mm-hmm. men are never called out for voting for a system that perpetuates inequities. And I hate to sound political about it, but that is a, like, you want to talk about inequities. The conversation is about how do the women do their things and how do this group over here, why are these groups doing this and why are these grouping that? Well, what about the group that has all of the power that keeps voting to perpetuate their power? And why don't mm-hmm. we question them? Because questioning everybody else doesn't seem to be working. And shame doesn't right. seem to work. Why don't we have a deeper conversation about the people who are perpetuating the system that built the system and make them fix it? Okay. <laughs> and I say that from my privilege point, you know, so not that any of you need the lecture, <laughs> but there's that. All right. I'll get back off my soapbox. Maybe cut that out of the podcast. Um, <laughs> how about, uh, don't cut it out. <laughs> all right well ryan how about you what, what are what is something you want to work on uh in 2020 so um I, I originally wrote about you know like personally what i need to work on which is time management but i think that's everyone everyone who needs to work on time management um the more i listen to you all talk the more i realize that i i need to take a more central role in um, addressing equity situations in my in my classroom, I have the unique um, perspective of being the only non-Caucasian, non-white uh, faculty member in the entire district, and so I, I can have these conversations in my classroom. But um, my my go-to emotion is anger when someone says something ignorant, and I need to not let that be the case. I need this to be a, a teachable moment for my students. So I need to, um, I need to work on being more open to having the conversation instead of just immediately getting angry and shutting it down. You know, no, as, as you said, um, that, that, that privileged group, these are my students they, they are mostly white, mostly male. Um, and, me getting angry is not helping change their perspective. So I need to do a better job of um, inviting the conversation and allowing there to be a safe place for them to talk without fear of retribution. You know, they're, they're going to say ignorant things and it's frankly, it's, it's not their fault. It's how they were raised. So we just need to raise them out of that or I need to help raise them out of that. So, um, you know, thank you guys for helping me, be reflective and figure out what more non-selfish things I need to work on. Mm, yeah. I, I don't know that I would say taking care of yourself is necessarily selfish though. Um, <laughs> connecting with your family and, 
and doing that sort of thing. But um, I also think it's hard. I think it's hard to, especially if you're, and I, I've had this conversation with a lot of colleagues who, who find themselves to be um, representing the, you know, in, in, for lack of a better term, the minority perspective for their community or for the faculty. Um, that's a lot of weight to carry. Um, that's hard. It, it is a lot of weight to carry. And the thing is, is that it also puts the onus for learning about that perspective back on the person who already lives that perspective. And at least in my opinion, it does. And when really the onus for learning should come from the people who don't have that perspective, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you know, and I've had this conversation with my students and, you know, especially with my black and Latino students, it's like, look, you know, we shouldn't be the ones responsible for teaching you everything about our experience, right? You know, there there are enough resources out there, and maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but I mean, it, it it's it's my, you know, it's 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 my feeling that it is not my responsibility as somebody who's, you know, a, a Latina to teach you everything that you know that Latinos have gone through, right? Like, it's not my responsibility to do that. It is my responsibility to show you, hey, these things that you're doing are not right or that you're saying are not right or these these belief systems that you have are incorrect. But it is not my responsibility to be the history teacher for you. You know, it's also not my responsibility to make sure that you are doing the work to 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 learn. You know, it's like, okay, I'm more than willing to help you understand, but please don't make the assumption that I represent every single Latino person that exists. You know, I mean, I have a, a good friend of mine and, and I love him dearly, but every once in a while, he'll ask me questions that I have no earthly idea the answer to about, you know, Mexican culture, about, you know, Latino culture. And I'm like, you know, that's a great question. I have no idea because these are not things that my family and I have experienced. And I mean, granted my family, you know, my parents were second generation, you know, that I guess makes me third. And, and so, you know, I don't know, I, my experience is not the same as somebody who, you know, immigrated here, say, you know, these like these students that I have who were born in say Colombia or Argentina and then we're brought here, you know, I, I don't have the same experience that they have, you know, and, and I, my experience certainly isn't representative of that of all Latino persons. You know, I grew up in the freaking suburbs, you know, my parents brought us here away from El Paso because they did not want us to grow up the same way they did. You know, mm -hmm. they, they didn't want us to grow up in schools where we would get trouble for speaking Spanish. As a consequence, guess what? We didn't learn to speak Spanish. You know, so I'm, I'm just going to say it. I'm whitewashed. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm but, whitewashed. But this is why the I think um, the school system has a responsibility to it. Like uh, as educators, people who are writing curriculum, who are mm -hmm. who have children in front of us, we should be interrogating all the systems that we're a part of and that all the history, like it's American history. We're all oh, a part of this American history. Completely That's agree. why. If we if we talked about these things and had kids delve into these topics and question and look at things, they would have to wrestle with why do they feel the way they do? You know right. what I mean? Right. And we we well, avoid it though. We just kind of skirt around it. Yeah. Well, and you know it's interesting. Somebody on Twitter asked the question or made the comment this week about you know talking about race in classes that you teach, you know, and, and issues of racism in classes that you teach. And I remember I retweeted that because I was like, especially in biology classes, you know, because here is a subject that, you know, has for, you know, has served as the basis for some of these racist ideas that people have, right? Like the reason why, you know, like this whole idea that, you know, blacks are inferior to whites because of this. Well, they are, they go back and say, well, science shows. No, it doesn't, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and things of that nature. I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to be teaching about this in our, in our biology classes, you know? So 
I think it's important for that to happen in every class because science is not the only place where that occurs. I mean, clearly it's going to happen in history classes. And, you know, I'm excited that in this state, you know, they've finally approved a, you know, Latino studies course for teaching in public high schools. I'm like, finally, Jesus, sorry. (laughs) And, and, and an African-American studies course is coming and, and really you know, I'm, I'm excited by that. I'm like, finally, there's some progressiveness in my state. I mean, I don't know how long it's going to last, but finally, you know, these kids, you know, kids are going to have the opportunity to learn about a history that is not theirs, you know, or, and, and even, you know, our black and Latino students are finally going to see themselves represented. Now who's writing these curricula? I have no idea that. And that's, that's the thing that concerns me. I'm like, okay, if it's written by a bunch of white folks, um, <laughs> then it might not be the history that needs to be taught or the, the history that's actually happened. You know, that's it's revisionist, you know, so I'm, I'm curious to see at least, you know, looking forward to seeing what these courses are going to look like. And, you know, are they developed by people who, you know, have expertise in, you know, that that background. And and I really wish that there were more of that represented in science classes. And I know in some classes it's harder to, to have than others, but biology, that seems like a natural thing for us to, to, to delve into. It really does. You know, it's just a, it's just a matter of whether or not, I guess, curriculum directors and, and such feel like it's appropriate for us to do so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that for me, I, I think both Lee and and Lee and Tanea brought it up, Ryan. To me, I think the big thing for you is it sounds like you need allies uh, in your district, and I I don't I don't know how how patient you can be to figure out you know who your allies are, but I, it's too much for <laughs> I I would feel like it, it, I would feel like it'd be a lot to put on any one person, but if you can build a small community of allies to have some conversations and some critical dialogue or even like a book group that might be something where, you know, it it might make it so that you can build a little bit of a groundswell in a place that, that needs a lot of that work, you know? No, I mean, like, like you guys said, it, it, it's interesting to have the onus um, on us as, I mean, we, we all represent different groups in our own rights. So, you know, how, how we, we're, we're kind of the represent, you know, I, at my school, I'm the representative of all minorities, even mm. though I am absolutely not um, Korean or uh, Haitian or indigenous or anything like that. Yeah, but I mean, again, I would hope, and it, you know, in some small schools, or and I can, I can only put on my own personal experience in some of the smaller schools and more rural schools that I taught in. You know, maybe it's not going to be a lot of different people, but I'm sure you have some ally who would be there to discuss sort of what are local appropriate conversations to have for your community and for your students. And, and maybe that's the step because I, I, I don't think it's fair as you, the adult to take it on for everybody. No. Um, and the thing that we, my, my community, don't get me wrong, is, is an excellent community. They are very well-meaning. They, mm-hmm. su- they support me. They, they just don't know. And so, yeah. you know, one of my pet peeves uh, is when I, I bring something up in the, um, in the vein of equity and the response is, well, I know someone who is black and they told me, or <laughs> I know someone who is gay and they told me that that's just one of my, and, and I have to try so hard not to get angry because they, they feel like they are legitimately bringing in, you know, something to the, to the table here. It's like, oh, I mean, j- just because someone tells it to you doesn't mean that someone else isn't telling you something you know it's (laughs) it's not a comfortable conversation to have and a lot of people will just say oh yeah that's that's exactly what i think just to make you go away yeah all right well i think we're filling our our uh our bucket full of uh equity things to think about as we move forward um all right how about you lee what where where are you sitting in terms of of what your needs are for 2020 and, and your moment of vulnerability so 
I was going to say, you know, part of part of what I wrote was about needing balance. And that's mm-hmm. something that that I've always needed to work on, you know, because one of the things that the pandemic has actually taught me is that, hey, um, you know, spending all of your time at school and, and doing all of this is not healthy. I mean, and I knew that before, but it was really obvious, you know, to me in the last couple of years, you know, with my um, having to be my late mother's caretaker and, and all of this, I, I really did not do a very good job of taking care of myself. And that, you know, was not just physical and mental health, but it was also like professional growth and all of that. I, I just didn't have time to, to, you know, learn and, and grow from, you know, professionally. And so I, um, you know, have learned over the last, I guess, eight months now, nine <laughs> months now, well, it, when, when, what even is time, as I said to yeah. somebody today, um, that, you know, how much of my time outside of school is spent doing work and how much of that time do I really need to be spending on myself? And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to shift the balance the other direction so that I can spend time, you know, taking care of my needs and, and making sure that, you know, that part of me is kept happy and, and balanced because if I can't do all of that, then there's no way I can do all the professional stuff that I do. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as Tanea. I do a lot of stuff. I mean, I wear a lot of hats and, you know, I'd like to continue to keep wearing those hats. But, you know, if I can't even keep my head straight, then those hats are not going to get worn. And so that's something that I really, really am trying very hard to work on. And, and I'm trying to make a commitment to myself. It's like, OK, we're going to do these things consistently so that, you know, I can stay physically and mentally healthy and and get the opportunity to grow as a professional, but also as a person, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, a hundred percent agree with that idea. And I think, uh, <laughs> what I've learned about myself in the pandemic has been, uh, has been as tough as some of the, <laughs> the things that I've learned uh, about the world outside <laughs> sometimes. So sometimes the reflection you get from this kind of time has been, uh, been mm-hmm. eye opening. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, um, you know, my perspective on on this particular case, and again, we always talk about how we 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 work in different schools. A lot of the work that's been done in the last year has been focusing on, you know, black, indigenous people of color and the way we talk about groups of, you know, different groups in this country is to sort of lump groups, group and lump people together in just big, giant monoliths. Um, And in my school, the 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 non-white students are predominantly Asian. Um, a lot of them come from Indian families. A lot of come from Chinese families. We have a very large both Indian and Chinese population um, in our community. And I realized that I just need to continue to learn more about the perspectives of my students and their families sort of across the board. Um, but I'm also really uncomfortable. And every year I grow more uncomfortable about how people talk about the Chinese and Indian family values like they're a monolith. You know, it's kind of like what Lee was saying earlier about, you know, you know, uh, the Latinx or Latino or Latina, like you, you meet one person who represents this group and suddenly they are the person who represents, you know, a few billion people. Um, (laughs) And, and I've always been uncomfortable with that, like forever. Uh, But every year it gets more and more uncomfortable and I do not think I personally bring a massive amount of preconcept preconceptions um, about specific cultures. But at the same time, I also know that I have some unconscious biases and I also um, I stew in this culture that has lots of these biases that are spoken out loud around me all of the time. And I am not impervious to those. So I, I think I need to the thing that I, I think I've you know, again, to go back in time, I would have said, well, I don't bring those perspectives, so I'm okay. But in reality, I think I just need to learn more about more cultures, get better perspective, and then also meet the people who they are, where they are, and learn every individual and every individual's family as best I can so that I don't talk about people as representative of a group or a part of a group, but as the individual that they are. They shouldn't have to carry the cultural baggage with them that the people who happen to be from their culture bring to the table. Yeah. I'm guilty of that too. Yeah. I, Cause I'll be like, Oh, white people. So-and-so, you know, 
um, I, you know, and I, and sometimes it's like, um, it'll be one particular person that has made a comment that gets you upset. And then now you're, and now it's like, oh, all, all white people believe so-and-so, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, I think we have to get to know all of our, like whoever our students are, we just have to get to know them and, and, and even connect with the families, right. And provide opportunities for families to, um, to share and get, you know, share, share who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And during a pandemic year, obviously that's not easy, but, um, you know, we have been, we have had some zoom calls and some opportunities where people were able to, to like parents, adults were able to share and talk to each other in ways that they don't normally do that. So I think it's, it's possible. Yeah. I also don't know how you feel about it, but like when you get an email from a parent who wants to talk, is your first thought, Oh goody. (laughs) Uh, No, but usually what happens, like I get really stressed before parent teacher conferences, Uh you know, and then parent teacher conferences happen. I'm like, Oh my gosh, those were like the sweetest parents. Like that was so easy, you know? Um, And I don't know, but I always get super stressed right before parent teacher conferences, maybe because when I was growing up, my mom was the mom that was like ready to curse the teacher out. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I don't think it's just that. Um, I think that (laughs) culturally we are, we're trained to sort of like, put our hair like the hairs are supposed to go up on the back of our neck when a parent wants to talk like they're coming to challenge what we're doing and i think that's the culture of teachers like why do they want to question me um, <laughs> and uh and really i think we need to start reframing it to go and like this is an opportunity for us to have oh, find a way to learn about each other and help this kid get better because for every 10 conversations i have with a parent maybe one out of 10 is kind of awful but nine out of 10 are usually pretty great um and we, I need to focus on that more and use them as the learning opportunity that they are um, that I don't know that I always <laughs> think of them as. So let's do an episode on parent-teacher conferences. I vote we just get rid of them and have open communication with parents and, like, just have parents, like, talk to them more, more openly and have more opportunity, you know, just, uh, I think yeah, that'd, that'd be better. All right. So commu- I think maybe communication could be like an arc for us we could talk about coming up like both to students like how do we talk to how how do we communicate with students because that's like a giant can of worms but also how do we communicate with parents because i i think that's something Mm -hmm. i mean i i would almost bet all of you are better that at at that than me because i i feel like that's a, a real weakness um it's not something that i do as intentionally as as i should so all right i'll add it to our list (laughs) Yay! all right well that's this has been uh, this has been a good kickoff you know 2021 it's you know hopefully a few months from now we're all vaccinated we're all uh fingers crossed still wearing our masks and still keeping distance because it's gonna be a long time before everybody gets vaccinated but yep i'll feel a heck of a lot better with those antibodies flowing through my veins Uh, (laughs) um definitely those memory those memory cells are going to be my friend so all right well we'd love to hear feedback from you what are your resolutions for 2021 what are you thinking about what are you hoping to get better on um and also what are your thoughts on equity we'd love to hear your thoughts so uh please subscribe to life in school on your podcast player of choice uh you can support our work on patreon.com slash lots you can also get show notes there as well as on lifeoftheschool.org music on this and every episode are provided by jake jenkins and magicians you can also follow us on twitter at Life of the School. So thanks for joining us and we will see you soon. 